Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned J. Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other interesting fields of endeavor. Trust me, you won't find most of them anywhere else on the radio. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host and our head brewer, Maria Cabre. Ciao, Maria. Ciao, Jonathan. In 2014, our first guest opened a neighborhood brewery slash restaurant in downtown Monterey, California with his father, John. Since then, the accolades have been rolling in, just like the morning fog in Monterey. The San Francisco Chronicle called Alvarado Street one of California's most exciting breweries. The brewery has grown to three locations, dozens of employees, countless fans across the country, and around the world. Welcome to the Beer Hour, J.C. Hill. How are you doing? And thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. It's an honor. How is the, uh, how is the weather on the West Coast, man? Uh, it's back to cool and uh, a little bit overcast. It's, uh, we live, you know, right on the coast in you know, central California. So we have a, a pretty nice little marine layer sitting over us for the last four or five months. Um, it got hot the last couple of days, but the, the fog is back and it's nice and crisp <laughs> out. So nice, loving man. It. nice. So take us back. Where were you living and what were you doing for a living when you began homebrewing in your garage? Yeah. So I was, uh, let's see here. I worked for a, uh, economic consulting company right out of college, 2007, um, kind of working with, uh, these, uh, hotel developers running, uh, you know, economic, uh, analysis, uh, a lot of spreadsheet type stuff, um, got laid off in, uh, the recession of 08, um, moved to San Diego, had some fun employment for a little while down there, um, traveled the world a little bit. And really fell in love with with the beer scene in San Diego in the sort of the late 2000s. It was a really incredible time in beer. There was Alpine, there was you know Ballast Point, Green Flash, and Alesmith. Um, you know, Society was was just starting to open. Okay, okay. And then uh, is that when you kind of started homebrewing yourself, or is this when you kind of jumped into a brewery to like dive? kind of head first into this the scene yeah i mean i think i think the uh it sort of happened organically so you know being unemployed uh, i was looking looking for something fun to do um i teamed up with a, uh, a college friend of mine who was living in san diego as well we opened up this little kebab shop on the san diego state campus oh really kind of kind of fortuitous yeah and we uh it was a little 800 square foot kind of rotisserie sandwich kind of kebab shop like the donor kebabs you find in you know europe or australia um, we thought that would be kind of a, a fun thing to do. Uh, and we, we bought a, uh, a small, uh, three tap cooler and we, we treated it like a little beer bar where we, uh, you know, rotated taps and, and just really fell into the beer, you know, just at, at full speed, uh, started homebrewing around that same time. I didn't think I put my homebrew on tap, uh, at a certain point, which was totally illegal. Um, <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just fell hard into it, man. It was just something that consumed me and, and honestly still does. But I mean, that uh, sort of momentum that we had from that first little shop, we then opened the second location uh, in the Pacific Beach neighborhood of San Diego, this beautiful second story uh, building that we, um, you know, we got 40 investors together, put it together on a shoestring budget, put a little three barrel system uh, in the back of the kitchen at this uh, second location. Uh, that became Amplified Aleworks, right. which yeah. is still going to this day. And, um, yeah, ran that for a few years before coming up to Monterey and starting Alvarado. So at this time, obviously, you guys got good enough at what you were doing with homebrew and everything else, you know, besides the kebab shop. And then you opened Amplified Aleworks in San Diego in 2012. Right. But interestingly enough, you actually hired a head brewer and stew it instead of doing it yourself. Why did you hire somebody else to do it? Uh, well, I mean, I was just a home brewer. Didn't know, didn't know spit, uh, <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh, you know, I obviously had the enthusiasm, the passion, 
Um, I got a, uh, a uh, certificate in brewing science while I was kind of opening everything through Siebel. Um, but, you know, the San Diego scene was, was a large part of why we got going. Um, the, the homebrew scene was incredible. You know, all these, uh, these breweries were just starting to just take off at that time and uh, had a lot of access to, to, you know, very available kind of legends, you know, down there. And we ended up uh, hiring a professional brewer who had formerly worked at Alpine. Uh, his name was Cy Henley. He was uh, just a fantastic addition, taught me just a lot, introduced me to, to so many people down in San Diego, and a lot of that really shaped, uh, you know, my journey. Nice, nice. Can I ask a question? Is the kebab shop still on college campus, or is that gone now? <laughs> no. We, so we, um, that, was, that was a tough venture. It was only, we only had about like five or six months of real business when you, when you put together all the, the breaks with the university in the summer. And right. It was, it was a tough location. So we ended up closing that and just focusing on, on the uh, amplified location in Pacific beach. And, uh, so are you, are, you know, it was a great stepping stone. Are you still, so do you still own is amplified still part of your, your portfolio? No, no, not, I, I don't uh, anymore. Um, I, I parted on very amicable terms, still really close with those guys. Um, yeah, I think, you know, once, once I decided to move to Monterey, and focus on Alvarado. I had to put, you know, hundred percent of my effort into that. And right. It was bittersweet. We worked, you know, super hard on getting amplified off the ground. I mean, it took us almost two years to, to build that place, but I mean, they've absolutely just crushed it over the years. They've opened more locations and uh, are, are thriving, you know, to this day. So super happy for those guys. Big, big part of my story though, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So two years after amplified you and your father actually opened Alvarado street brewing in downtown Monterey, what was the concept and how did you guys get it up and running? Which I, I mean, I have to also add, sure. I'm, I'm probably very, you're probably one of the only guys I'm really jealous of because Monterey is amazing. I mean, if I didn't live in Miami, I would probably live in Monterey. So, <laughs> well, we can always switch. Cause I, I like it down in Mon- okay. Miami quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a little, little swaparoo. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's, uh, it, it was a really cool venture with my father. We had talked for you know many years about eventually doing like a small brew pub together. Um, that opportunity happened a lot faster probably than, than I was ready to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, he invested in, a, in an old building in downtown Monterey. I was just like, Hey, what do you think about this? And I went up there and checked it out. You know, it was built in the 1920s, uh, or excuse me, late yeah, early 1920s, just absolutely beautiful location, completely gutted right, you know, in the heart of downtown Monterey. And it was just such a cool opportunity. There wasn't really much of a brewing scene in Monterey. There's the, uh, you know, we have, we've got one brew pub that's, that's been there since the mid nineties and and they're awesome. They're down the street, Peter B's. We're still super close with them. They make great beer, but other than that, there wasn't much in the area. So it just seemed like a really good opportunity to, um, you know, start cultivating a, a little beer scene in Monterey. It was sort of like the land race, you know, I and mean, before there was 10,000 breweries in the country, we kind of course. We had to go for it. <laughs> of course. So when did you guys officially open in Monterey? It was in May of 2014 is when we officially opened and we opened uh, mostly as a restaurant. Uh, if anyone's been to our original location, it's, uh, I mean, it was about a 200 seat restaurant, uh, with a 10 barrel, uh, brewery system uh we also have a uh, about a 70 seat beer garden in the back that we added a couple years later um but yeah we opened with uh you know i wanted to put some core beers on at the time of course um some of those still exist to this day like like mai tai which is one of our biggest selling beers to this day but uh yeah it was cool i mean the goal was just to sort of exist in the community and make fresh beer and just provide a great place for, for the locals and, and tourists. Obviously we get a lot of tourists in Monterey yep. to, uh, you know, come, come try the beer that, you know, I was really passionate about, um, largely influenced from my time in San Diego. That's awesome. I mean, and you know, it's not a bad spot to open up there either, but since we are in on business radio, how did you guys go about financing this opening of this, this brewery? Sure. I mean, super simple there. I mean, you know, it was my father, you know, he, he, he bankrolled the project. So, you know, there's definitely quite a degree of privilege involved. Um, but you know, it was an opportunity that I took and, you know, have ran with and, you know, it basically got us on the right track to be able to open, you know, another restaurant, uh, and our production brewery in Salinas 2016. And, 
we have two more projects in the works right now. Oh, wow. We can get to that, but that you guys are definitely on a roll. What size capacity were you guys first brewing at? So we first, let's see here, we were 10, so it's 10 barrel system. We had four fermenters, a bunch of bright tanks, you know, classic kind of brew pub setup. Um, I think we did like six or 700 barrels in that space in the first year, pushed it to like eight, 900 and years after that. And then now it kind of hovers around seven, 800 a year. Where, whereas our production brewery in Salinas, uh, we opened that in 20, we started planning for that in, in late 2015, opened in 2016. It's a 20 barrel, uh, three vessel system. Um, we have, we've added a bunch of tanks over the years, but I think our first full production year out in Salinas 2016, we were at around 3000 barrels. Um, and to date, you know, we'll probably do about 12,000 barrels this year. Wow. That's, that's, that's a nice steady growth though, for sure. That is, uh, that's a good growth chart. Hop culture once said that you guys brew some of the best Northeast IPAs outside of the Northeast managing the blend of the west coast and east coast styles perfectly i've had i mean i've had your beers obviously and i would agree how do you go about blending those two styles together to create what you guys are serving sure i mean well that's super kind of them to say that i mean i i mean i think you know the hoppy landscape today is just incredible i mean there's so much such a great time to be a, a consumer because there's just just access to incredible quality beer especially in the hazy ipa category i think for us you know, I was really in- inspired by, you know, some trips I took to the East Coast and, you know, obviously friends, friendships that we've cultivated over the years and shapes kind of how we approach sort of Northeast New England IPA. Uh, I think for us, it's important to uh, maintain uh, a little bit more bitterness than you probably find, you know, on the East Coast versions, but we try and make it as smooth as possible um, by then, you know, manipulating the, the final gravity or, you know, kind of different... Um, sort of sort of sort of malt bill that we build back um i think in general we probably have a little bit more like there's a little bit more grit to our sort of hazy ipas uh in terms of just um just sort of bitterness and and probably our water profile has something to do with that as well did you guys ever get any kind of pushback i mean obviously being in california since most of the people you know growing up there and living in in cali you know are diehard clear bitter IPA guys. I mean, how, how did it, did it take off at first or did it take some groundwork, you know, laid down to really get that style going out there? It's actually funny you say that because when we first came out with our IPAs and we first opened, um, I was trying so hard to get that beer to clear up and brighten up because I really wanted to, uh, I guess, prove myself to, you know, obviously the, the community I left behind in San Diego and, I was really self-conscious of this hazy West coast kind of IPA that we were coming out with in the beginning. Um, it wasn't something I was intending to do with that particular style. Um, but basically, yeah, the locals loved it. They're like, Oh, it's cloudy. This is great. You know? So (laughs) it just kind of became, that wasn't like our hazy IPA, the way our hazy IPA is, but I just, I wanted that beer to be bright. I wanted it to be clear. I mean, uh, Um, you know, Sometimes mistakes happen and uh, they actually turn out for better. You know what I mean? So that's awesome. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Why did, you know, I mean, I know you guys also have another brand, Yeast of Eden. Why did you guys decide to launch Yeast of Eden as its own brand as opposed to creating mixed culture sour ales under Alvarado Street? Yeah, totally. I think the, the simple answer to that is we were doing a lot of kettle sours early on with Alvarado Street. And uh, we wanted to just differentiate the mixed culture stuff because it was just such a different process, you know, it took so long to come to fruition. And ultimately, you know, the sours we were making under the Alvarado Street umbrella were very simple uh, in their build. I mean, they were, you know, had some lactic acidity, uh, you know, some alcohol and just a clean fermentation just for, for a canvas for fruit expression, you know, right. simply put. Whereas, you know, with your mixed culture beers, there's a lot more going on a lot more process going on. And we just thought it would be great early on to, to make that distinction so that, um, you know, the customer wouldn't get confused. How much production time are you guys putting into yeast of Eden now? Like how many barrels in capacity are going towards yeast of Eden? Do you think? Sure. Well, yeast of Eden's run, it's, it's basically a one man show. Uh, Andrew Rose, yep. who's, uh, you know, been, been with the company since day one, you know, he started out as our first brewer. 
uh, on staff. He, you know, that East of Eden is 100% his brainchild, and um, I'm really super proud of him. And his trajectory has just been incredible to watch because I didn't really know a whole lot about mixed culture beer uh, initially. Neither did he, but you know, he just you know dove headfirst into that field and and is one of the, one of the best producers in the world, in my opinion. Uh, you know, at this point. Um, but it's a pretty small program. We have had to cut it back, um, you know, a little bit over the years, uh, just, you know, changing palates, changing consumer demand. You know, the beers are incredible, obviously, where they're, they're, we're not, you know, they're, they're not going anywhere. Um, but I'd say East of Eden is uh, pretty small. It's probably under a thousand barrels a year of, of actual production. Nice. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we are talking to J.C. Hill. So, Tell us a little bit about your other two locations. And by the way, if you ever need like a brewer uh, for your Carmel by the Sea uh, location, just let me know. Um, Don't but, give uh, him the job. Hey, I'll bring hops and, uh, and yeast nutrient, whatever you need, man. I'll be there, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. So, so, so uh, tell me a little bit about the, the other two locations you got going on. Sure. Yeah. So the Carmel location opened in, uh, let's see here, late 2018, um, early 2019. Uh, it actually opened as uh, East of Eden. Um, oh. We, we uh, initially opened it as East of Eden. The, the city of Carmel wasn't so keen on us uh, opening an Alvarado Street location there for reasons I, I won't get into. Um, <laughs> of course. You know, yeah. They kind of thought, thought we were a chain or something, which is just, Kind of, kind of ridiculous, but either way, you know, we had a lot of momentum going with used to being at the time. And it was something we were really, really proud of and, you know, still are to this day. Um, so it was pretty predominantly, you know, a mixed culture brewery uh, and, and just a really great R&D facility to kind of explore that, that part of our company and that art. Um, we ended up changing the, the, uh, the name of the business back to Alvarado Street Brewery during the pandemic. Um, you know, for, for various reasons, I think we, we have a little bit more marketing power and a little bit more brand appeal with the Alvarado street brand. Um, I think, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do in, in yes. desperate times to, yep. you know, to, to save the business. Um, and, uh, that was something we did as some of the city let us do. So, you know, in 2020, it was, uh, you know, rebranded Alvarado street brewery and bistro, um, still have, you know, a lot of mixed culture vessels in Carmel, which is kind of fun. Uh, but you know, now it serves predominantly as kind of our R and D, uh, brew house. It's a five barrel system. Uh, we do everything, a lot of single hop beers, a lot of lagers, um, you know, do all our wet hop beers over there during this time of year. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful spot. And what about Salinas? Yeah. So Salinas, we opened, uh, in 2016. Uh, we had a tasting room there that we opened for, you know, it was open for about four four and a half years, uh, closed, uh, with the pandemic and, you know, business has changed a lot in you know, in 18 months oh, yeah. during the pandemic and <laughs> yes, it has. kind of realized I need that valuable tasting room space to, to eventually put more tanks. And I didn't want to just reopen it for a year and then have to close it again. So we kind of made the hard decision to, uh, to close the, the tap room out in Salinas, but we are uh, building a new restaurant and bar uh, in uh, Old Town Salinas Ooh. that we're working on that we okay. hope to have done uh, uh, summer of uh, 2022 next no. year. Nice. So we, we both own and operate breweries and locations which attract, you know, tons of tourists. How do you cater to the tourists while still kind of keeping that local clientele engaged as well? Man, that's so hard. I mean, that's been the challenge, right? As, as yep. you know, um, you know, the weekends we just get, you know, absolutely, you know, annihilated with tourists. Um, you know, all, all businesses do in, in Monterey and Carmel. And I think for us, it's about just maintaining a really deep uh, community connection, um, whether it's through, you know, working with different uh, nonprofits. Um, we we uh, were a member of the 1% for the planet which is something that we channel a lot of efforts into um, environmental nonprofits that are local, Big, Big Sur, um, you know, oh. Ventana Wilderness. Uh, so that's been a really cool way to maintain the community, um, you know, involvement, but also through, you know, more uh, humanitarian kind of charitable uh, events and fundraisers and, you know, doing a lot of that stuff and engaging with your community, uh, you know, as much as you can on the weekdays. So that, you know, when it, 
a lot of locals avoid our restaurants on the weekend. Uh, maybe including myself, just because <laughs> I, I don't want to. I, I don't. I, 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 don't, don't I don't. I don't come around people. here on the weekends, dude. I do not come around here on the weekends. So I feel you. It's it's crazy, but I mean, I would wholeheartedly agree that you know, being in Wynwood, where we are, which is a massive mass. I think we in Miami, we're the second most visited part of the city if i'm correct we've it, moved up to the first actually, actually um, so within the last three years this has been a turnaround where people aren't really going to south beach anymore right and they're coming here they're going, they're going to winwood yes nice. yeah they want to see all the the murals um walk or, around a small area that also has a concentration of of bars and restaurants and things like that and you know we're we're very lucky to be in this neighborhood no, I, yeah i wouldn't take it for anything else but it is hard to keep the locals that you had from day one engaged. So it's still, you're kind of having to play that game of what can we still do for the locals? Like, you know, when we moved to the Osner app, let's just par se, you know, the online retail now for our limited bottle releases, we're actually still releasing 90% of the bottles through Osner, but we're still holding 10% of that crop to be picked up on Saturday by locals only. Can't get, you know, because most of these guys can't get it fast enough online you know all the bots or everybody else picks them up so we are actually holding back 10 percent for locals to pick up in person so i mean it's it's we're trying to still figure out ways to keep these people engaged but i completely agree it's it's a big balancing game for sure um yeah 100 percent. yeah i mean i don't know if we we have talked that much about that but my father is also my business partner um what is your experience having your dad as uh as your business partner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure, man. It's, uh, it's been a pretty, uh, great journey. I'm, I'm very appreciative to have, uh, someone with his experience, um, to be able to lean on, you know, day in and day out, it's kind of evolved into, you know, I'm, I kind of handle operations, you know, he's more, um, you know, uh, back of the scenes with, uh, you know, just, just kind of handling lots of like administrative stuff, stuff that's, um, you know, probably you and I don't really want to handle on, no. on the day to day, you know, we get to be the makers and, and get to have that kind of tangible reward with, with what we do, whether it's making beer or, you know, chatting with your team about food or working on service standards, right. you know, I think that's for me, that's where all the fun is. Um, you know, the business management side of it, you know, I definitely do like a good amount of that as well, but, you know, having somebody with, with, you know, you know, decades of experience uh, and expertise in that field is something I don't take for granted. And, um, we get along really well. We see eye to eye on most things. I mean, it's, uh, (laughs) I'm pretty lucky in that regard. So (laughs) he's a, he's an architect too, right? Did, did he design, did he design any of the buildings? Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything. So that's kind of what, what makes, uh, him just like the most advantageous, uh, you know, business partner to have is he just has his whole career has been in construction, architecture, you know, like you need someone to go pull permits for something or, you know, right. make adjustments on the fly on your plans. It just, just dealing with in California, it's really hard to get anything done. Uh, going through plan check and, you know, just all the rules and regulations. It's, it's just a sea of, of kind of red tape that we have to navigate. And luckily he does that so that I can focus on the business. That's awesome. It, my Mine is more on the mechanical and electrical side. So if there's anything that needs to be repaired, built, fixed, uh, as Maria likes to call him. Uh, MacGyver. MacGyver. Yes. He, uh, he, he is my fixes. MacGyver. <laughs> I mean, he, there is nothing he can't fix, make, do. I mean, he, after our initial run, he has run all of our glycol plumbing. He has done everything built from scratch. I mean, it's oh, that's uh, awesome. So yeah, it's absolutely you know it's that's very beneficial nice to have that you know that other side. So sure. So to kind of round it all out, where do you see you guys going from here? What is kind of like your plan within the next five years? You would say. Sure. I mean, right now, um, I think we've kind of reached uh, a pretty big, not like a turning point, but we we we've just got out of a really nasty. Uh, um, relationship with our, uh, our local distributor. They only carry two brands of ours and it's, it's, um, you know, Mai Tai, which is our, our flagship West coast IPA Monterey beer, which is our, our, uh, all grain, like light lager everyday drinking beer. Um, we kind of signed on with them during the pandemic. Um, they tried to, uh, <laughs> basically sell our brand rights without us really oh. knowing to, oh, to wow. a much bigger wholesaler and, 
there, therefore it, uh, it got, it got nasty for about three months, but we, we finally finished, uh, taking it back, so to speak. And so we're, we're resuming self distro, uh, in our, in our home market. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that. That's going to be a huge part of our future. Uh, it was really just, just leaning in on our little three County area down here. Um, you know, having Alvarado street be, be a household name and just hyper focused, hyper local on, you know, some core beers in our backyard. I mean, obviously keep up with, uh, you know, all the specialty one-offs that we're doing. I mean, that's like the, the main part of our business. Um, and, you know, keeping up with the, you know, the festivals and, and, you know, the collaborations, I mean, that's, that's like been the most fun part about it, you know, to be honest, but I'm actually finding a lot of enjoyment, just kind of focusing on, you know, some core brands and our home market's been, uh, been kind of cool. So do you guys, I mean, you think the focus in on your, like your home markets now, is there any plans to expand any more beyond that? Or do you think you guys are going to kind of settle here and live within the space that you guys have created now? Yeah, no, I think so. I think in terms of Northern California, the Bay Area, Sacramento, maybe maybe parts of Los Angeles and, and San Diego, uh, you know, the five-year plan w- would definitely include some more beer for those markets. Um, but I think, you know, right now we just really want to make sure we have as much uh, presence, you know, in, in our home market. And, uh, you know, once we're done sort of building that, I mean, it'll be always be working on that. Uh, then we can kind of, you know, step into other markets and we sell a ton of beer into the Bay area, you know, already, uh, and have been, it's just more of a different graph demographic. It's more, more of the kind of the more craft savvy, uh, more niche kind of market that we sell to. And, and I think in our local market, we're just trying to, to, uh, drop everyday folks into, uh, you know, introducing them to our beer, people who aren't you know, necessarily the biggest beer aficionados. Awesome. Awesome, man. I, I want to say to all the listeners, if you are planning on, or you're, going to go to either monterey salinas or carmel by the sea make sure you definitely stop by alvarado street brewing and we want to say thank you very much jc for coming on man it's been a pleasure and uh thanks for having me john appreciate it thanks jc hopefully we can get uh well i need to get out there number one but number two hopefully we can get you guys back to Wakefest this uh this coming rendition next year Oh, you, you can guarantee it. I'll, I will be there for sure. No doubt. It's one of my favorite festivals and we just, we love you guys so much and can't wait to, can't wait to hang out again soon. All right, brother. Thanks, Thank JC. you very much. Looking Have forward a good one, to man. it. All right. Take care guys. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest has a great job with a really cool title. Director of Innovation at Mast Jägermeister, U.S. His former job title, tour manager for legendary bands Asia, Slayer, and Motley Crue, was nothing to sneeze at either. He's one of the most respected and beloved personalities in the spirits industry. Drawing on his career in music, he's now on the cutting edge of marketing and promotion for one of the world's most popular spirit brands. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jack Carson. How are you doing? Doing great. It's great to see you both and, and hear you both. Yes, uh... Very happy to have you on the show. I mean, we would have uh, much rather have you in person, but we are happy to have you on in uh, any form Very that we can. Very happy to be here. I, I, you know, I'm looking behind you at the uh, the beautiful print that you have in there of uh, all the Star Wars chaps having their <laughs> beer, and it really makes me wish I was there having a beer right now because, you know, you do that stuff all right. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. But let's uh, let's talk about you. When did you uh, first develop your love for music? Um, that's, it, it really has been a lifelong thing. Uh, my old man was in the music business. Um, so I grew up around it. It was always in the home, usually relatively loud. And, uh, you know, I remember going to shows, live shows at a, at a very early age. Uh, I think one of my earliest memories was, um, seeing ACDC at the Hammersmith Odeon and, um, you writing a story about it for school the following week. And the title of the story was this weekend I rang hell's bell. That's and, the, and the teachers called my parents and they're like, guys, and it turns out that they didn't really realize it was myself being held up by the road crew and, and wielding the, 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 uh, the hammer. It was a, a, a great memory, but that certainly kicked off a lifetime of, of loving music. So when, how did you even become involved in becoming a tour manager? Well, good question. That was actually my old man's fault. You know, most, most parents want their children to be, uh, you know, doctors, uh, you know, uh, rocket scientists and that type of thing. And I remember quite early, he, he had some tour that was happening. He said, you just needed my help on the road. 
And I was actually going to college at the time. And, you know, most parents just want the kids to stay in college. He says, no, come, come do this, this rock tour. So that started it. And, and that was, um, I, I don't remember who that was, but then I, um, just started, uh, you know, touring from there. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. So you just run into people that needed somebody to do something at first. It was you carrying guitars around and eventually, uh, becoming a tour manager, which was, um, really an awesome job. And I'm glad I did it while I was a bit younger. I think if I had to do it now, it would be not as awesome. <laughs> Where did you grow up, Jack? Uh, mostly, uh, well, in Southern California for, for most of my life once we moved to the U.S., but born in England and uh, raised there. Uh, I know moved, uh, the family moved in 1989. I was about uh, 15 years old or so at the time. And then we moved to Southern California and um, there was no looking back. So who have you tour managed for? Who, who, ha- who have I tour managed? Yes. Um, a number of artists from, from ones you absolutely wouldn't have heard of to ones you absolutely have heard of. In fact, you know, when a guy like me calls a brewer to try to, to try to do a collaboration or something fun or, you know, something marketing driven for work, how do you make a connection with, with somebody who's like a, a top tier brewer? And it, and I, you always wonder that first call, how's it going to go? Am I going to get hung up on, I don't know. And I called you for the first time right. and your ringback tone was Asia heat of the month. Oh boy. <laughs> and I, 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 rem, I remember going, you know, this is Jack Carson from Diego Meister. Um, Great that you know, I love your ringback tone. In fact, I used to work for that band, and I think you call back 30 seconds later. He goes, Oh man, I love Asia, and I think that's how <laughs> was our conversation was um, about Asia. Uh, but you know, that, that was actually a great tour. Um, really enjoyed that. It was when all four original members got back together and did a tour of the U.S. One of my favorite tours ever. Um, but I've been on the road with uh, um, bands like Motley Crue, uh, Dawkins. Um, uh, you know, to other bands like Nancy Griffiths and the Crickets, uh, Buddy Holly's original band, and and, and so and a, a bunch of others in between. It's it, and always look back on those with. Uh, there's always moments on the tour that were amazing and fun. There's always moments on the tour that were. Did that really just happen? Um, <laughs> I, I loved it. Very happy that I got to do it. So I'm guessing that Jägermeister tapped you during this whole period of being a tour manager for these bands like Slayer, Motley Crue, they tapped you to do their live music tour. Is that how that kind of all came about or how did that transition happen? Yeah. So Jägermeister, um, on one of the very first tours I, uh, I did as a tour manager in, kind of in the U S kind of running the whole tour was, was a, a band called systematic. They were a Bay area band, really great guys, really talented. This is when that kind of kind of, I don't want to say new metal, but that hard metal scene was coming out of Northern California they were one of the first signings to Lars Ulrich's record label, the drummer from Metallica. So right. they, they got a great start. They had a, a great fan base. And the first tour that we did was a Jägermeister sponsored tour. Jägermeister for a long time uh, did about three tours a year, the Jägermeister music tours. And um, so that was my first really introduction to Jägermeister from a business standpoint, or even other than, you know, drinking it and um, really just stayed in touch with the people at Jägermeister over the years. And then as my, sort of career progressed in the, in the music industry and touring. Yeah. I stayed in touch with them. And every now and then I would get a call, Hey, do you want to come in a, come work for us? I'm going, you know, busy doing rock tours. And, and, and every now and then you want to come work for us? No, no. And then uh, it, it was Motley Crue. They went on a, on a two year break. It was like a scheduled break. They you know, all had other bits and pieces to do. And that week I got the call. Hey, you want, yes, absolutely. I'll be right there. So it was, <laughs> but, you know, but that was at a, that was at a time too. I, I can't remember exactly how old I was probably early thirties when I was looking to sort of not settle down because working for Jägermeister is not what anybody would consider settling down, but not necessarily touring all the time. And the great thing about my first job at Jägermeister was it was quite closely related to the touring I was doing. So it was, it was really great. That's awesome. That's awesome. How would you describe Jägermeister, the spirit, not the brand to any of our listeners out there who have not tried it yet? That is a good looking question. And I will answer in the way that Sidney Frank himself, who was uh, one of the first to really get behind Jägermeister in the U S he was an importer and, and really a marketing genius. And he was interviewed, I think it was in Forbes. And his answer was tastes like money. But I'm not going to answer it that way. But that is a great answer. Uh, Jägermeister is is uh, uh, really a digestif. It's a herbal spirit. It's made of 56 herbs, roots, fruits, and spices sourced from all over the world. It is gentle, cold, macerated, which really separates it from many other spirits out there. It's kind of in a class of its own that way. And then every single ounce of Jägermeister 
is uh, spends a year in oak barrels. And these are massive, beautiful oak barrels. And um, the resulting liquid is incredibly complex. It's a wonderful blend of bitter and sweet. And um, it really goes well in so many things. But truthfully, you know, an ice cold shot, a one ounce perfectly poured ice cold shot is one of the greatest flavors and, and tastes. So, yeah, it's herbal liqueur. It's imported from Germany. And um, it's brilliant. I mean, you, Marie, and myself, we, we've had the conversation, you know, about Jaeger. I mean, obviously, to me, in a younger age, Jaeger was, you know, Jaeger bombs or something else. But then as you grow and your palate grows, you kind of come to understand just how great of a, a spirit it is and the digestif that it is. I mean, it's very complex. But in the same manner of how great this is, it is a great pairing for beer as well, especially craft beer. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, first, thank you, thank you for saying that. And I remember that was one of the first things we really connected on was, you know, a guy like you that knows taste really well um, to really love Jägermeister. First, it makes total sense because you're able to sort of wrap your head around what's going on in the shot glass. And why does it taste so great with beer? Well, it's incredibly complex. You know, when we came down and shot deer in a beer with you, you had paired your uh, your brown ale, which is absolutely delicious. And it has that sort of a little malt sweetness to it, kind of a strong malt backbone. And that really made the element of the caramel that is in Jägermeister sing. And it's really funny because you're different types of craft beer. And I say craft beer because we really like to partner with independent craft brewers. And that's because, you know, we're a family-owned company. If we were a beer, we would get the little upside-down bottle on our, on our label because it's really independent but, you know, when, you know, your beer brought out that beautiful maltiness in Jägermeister where um, uh, we went to Maui to film at Maui Brewing and Garrett selected a um, his pineapple mana wheat. And that one really brought out the great citrus notes that's in Jägermeister. So I think that the reason it goes so well with beer is because it brings something to the table that you wouldn't perhaps get from a, a sort of a one dimensional spirit. I don't want to say that whiskey is one dimensional. Terrible thing to say, but, you know, <laughs> whiskey is whiskey. It's yes, lovely. It is. But it's um it is not so disparate as the taste that's in Jägermeister and um yeah that's I mean yeah because I I remember doing the the filming for Deer and Beer and sitting there with Willie and trying and taking sips and then it was you know how it mattered and how you paired did you have Jaeger first and then the beer and then or was it beer and then Jaeger and every time you had this a little more nuances came out of both of them and the pairing was so I mean it was great. I mean, it was definitely, they worked very well together. So I could see paired with other beers as well from other independent craft brewers, how well they would work. And it yeah. was just kind of a, a great uh, marriage of the two, you know, the two worlds of spirits and craft beer. How would you say that your your craft beer journey has been? When, when did you first become exposed to craft beer? And I mean, have your taste evolved from that that first, you know, experience, would you say? Yeah, I, I, I definitely the taste evolved from the first time of having craft beer. I, I growing up in Southern California, I I wonder what my first one was. I'm guessing at the time because it was 400 years ago. It was probably <laughs> Sam Adams Boston Lager. That was probably the first craft beer I had. It was probably that one or Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, right? Uh, which is still to this day a favorite. I, that's just a wonderful beer. Um, but those are sort of the two craft beers that I would have sort of known about early on. And in one of the tours that we were on. Um, one of the owners of the tours, I think he invested in Lagunitas early. This is before the sellout, right. before all of that. And so we were getting cases of Lagunitas um, IPA dropped by the tour bus every night. And I was like, yeah, this is this is my jam. This is delicious beer. And that's really, I, that was the, the gateway into more craft beer. So what would you say you would be drinking nowadays? If your tastes have come along, and uh, those are still great beers, obviously, Lagunitas IPA and Sierra Nevada. Yeah. I mean, you've obviously grown to like uh 24 street brown ale i mean is there anything kind of in your wheelhouse nowadays that uh you, would you like know what i i'm 100 percent that guy when you look up craft beer fan it's probably a picture of me you know you know mid 40s you know beard so it's <laughs> i love ipas and uh i moved from you know california to the east coast probably eight or nine years ago and i didn't think i would ever not be a west coast ipa fan because that's what i grew up really liking but then Moving here and that New England the hazy IPA thing started. I'm like, why is this beer hazy? It's terrible. And now it's like, I love it. And uh, and the the great thing about it, there are so many different ones that bring so many different like different amounts of hop nuance or of tropical flavor into beers. 
And all the brewers kind of manage that in a different way and balance it with the bitterness and the ABV of, of their beer. So, yeah, I just really like beer. That's awesome. That, that is awesome. So since we are on business radio, I want to ask you kind of a straightforward business question. What are some of the challenges of marketing an iconic brand such as Jägermeister in the U.S.? Well, uh, marketing an iconic brand comes with uh, baggage, I think, both good and bad. Um, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. Your, your, your uh, mindset for Jägermeister was the uh, Jäger bombs back in the day with very sweet and caffeinated energy drink, and that's kind of how you came up knowing about it. The other side of having an iconic brand is it, it's, it's real and it's historic, and it's, you know, you go to Germany and people talk about Jägermeister with reverence because it, it is all natural. It's been the same since it was created. So, you know, the challenges that we, we try to try to overcome or face are how do we tell that great craft story in a real way? And um, honestly, our Deer in a Beer campaign was one way of doing that, was to talk about the real taste and the real effort that goes into making Jägermeister. Um, we also, I think, and this is, a, like you said, we're on a business network, and uh, this is an interesting shoot-yourself-in-the-foot business thing that we did, but I think it was fantastic. And again, it takes a ballsy family-owned company to do this. We sort of officially divorced from the Jäger bomb, I would say about 10 years ago. Right. Because that's not how we wanted Jägermeister to be consumed. Sure, consumers can do whatever they want with it. And man, I encourage you, if you, if, if you want to have a Jäger bomb, by all means, just responsibly. But, <laughs> you know, going out and telling our sales reps, do not promote with local energy brands. Don't do this. That was a really big strategic decision because you, we couldn't grow from the energy bomb. It was, it was almost like a bomb hangover, so to speak. The right. only way to grow the brand was to really talk about its quality and its heritage, which is all real and true. And I think the great thing thing about being a marketer is having a real story to tell. Jägermeister is all natural. It's the care that goes into making this product. Jonathan, I've told you this before, and I will stand to it. You are coming to Wolf and Buddle, Germany, which is the only place in the world where Jägermeister is made, and you will see, and and you're going to love it. It's just so cool. We're talking to Jack Carson, Director of Innovation at Mast Jägermeister. Once we get kind of the clearance and we're in the clear here, we're going to Germany. I'm I jumping mean, in that yeah. bag, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't invited, but I'm going to just go away. What do you mean you weren't invited? You were 100%. You yes. must have to be there. No, I'm definitely going. I want to see the production. I want to see everything. I mean, it, because just the rich history behind the company and the spirit itself is is amazing. And to actually go to the spot where it's produced would be amazing. I mean, just like going to any craft brewery, I mean, that has a long history. None really over in the States have that much history as such as Jägermeister, but it's still something just to, you know. We can go to, to Weinstefaner. While right. we're in Germany, we can go to exactly. Weinstefaner. I mean, I also want to talk about deer and beer. I mean, you guys have started this program to help educate people in the U.S. beyond just like what we said about the past thoughts of Jägermeister. This is more of a program to help push that to the forefront, push it to the future. I mean, obviously, the craft beer industry is growing, and this is a good partnership. Can you explain a little bit of what exactly is deer and beer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, deer and beer for us is is a way to change the occasion a little bit for Jägermeister. I think, you know, if, if you're a fan of Jägermeister, you might be drinking a little bit later at night. Or, or for me, it's after dinner. I, I still do it as a sipper every now and after dinner. But deer and beer gets us into, like, Tuesday afternoon in a bar, your favorite local craft beer. What is the thing that's going to set that off and elevate that experience? And it's an ice-cold shot of Jägermeister with it because of all of the different flavors that are involved. That's sort of the consumer-facing part of deer and beer. But uh, from the business side of it, because you, um, it's important to the brewers, then what can we bring to the table? Not the smallest part of that is a social media presence, doing the great content that we've done, promoting what would be a regional brand of beer on, on a national platform. But then also, you know, we had great success in, in some chain stores. You know, we have a, an entire pe- uh, team of people dedicated to, you know, chain business, which is so, so important. Uh, and uh, think about a chain like Walmart, who are, are you know, they, they set their shelves months and months and months in advance. Well, you know, um, one of our chaps was able to talk to his buyer at Walmart and at the same time had a good relationship with a craft beer buyer. So we were actually able to do a deer and a beer display in a Walmart. And you think about what a great success that is, not not just for the brewery and for Jägermeister, but for the consumer, because they go in and they see something. Well, that's kind of cool. I've never heard of that. I'll try that. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a success there. Absolutely. But it started we were one of your first partners that first yep. iteration i think how many partners did you have in the craft beer industry 
think we had five. Um, and you you were one of the first, and, I, and you were the first one we shot at when we showed right. up with the crew. It was uh, I remember it was a, it was a great day. And and that first year was all about just kind of laying the ground rules for deer, but not the ground rules, sort of laying down the roots for what deer should be, which is have this taste. Don't shoot the Jägermeister. Just really enjoy the taste and the nuance that it brings out in the craft beer. And, and like what you said early on, which I really did love, especially with with your beer, was if you sipped Jägermeister first and then drank the 18th Street, it was one thing. And if you sipped it the other way around, it was a different thing. And that was that's a great experience. And here's a fun side note on that. You know, our German ownership family or, or Germans in general, they they have a very specific idea of what beer is. And it's not what you make. No, it's not. You know, when I when I try to explain, you know, a West Coast, you know, super hoppy Citra Ford IPA, sip it with Jägermeister. Uh, you know, one of the top guys at the company, we had a party here at the office uh, way pre-COVID. And he was sort of reticent to try this this heavy beer with Jägermeister. Right. But he did the sip sip. And I truthfully saw a wow moment in him. Right. It was totally different flavor and elicited this wonderful citrus uh, flavor out of the Jägermeister and uh, out of the beer. And that was, um, that was all, that was just really great to see a real, real reaction like that from people. Where, where were we in, uh, it was Chris Santos's uh, restaurant, right? That, yeah. Uh, yeah. That we had the meeting with you and we, they tried yeah. 24 street Brown and yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was kind of interesting to see that other side because classically Germans drink beer where they're from in that region. And yep. they stick to that, and all beers really have to be by the Reinskabutes or, you know, their style guidelines, which is very, very strict. And it, it, it's nothing like what we do now. But, I mean, obviously beer has grown to a point where it's so much more than that now. So I think yeah. there, there's a lot of evolution going on and an inclusion of being able to pair with spirits like that. I think we're at that point, you know what I mean, to be able to do these things. So it's, it's like I, I keep going back. It's, it's an amazing thing to be able to work with you guys. But beyond the deer and beer, you guys during the pandemic, you also did you know black is beautiful, yeah. and also you know pushing that and helping that, which is a great cause. But currently, you've partnered with Post Malone on the Save the Night initiative, which is to get people back into the bars post pandemic. You you know you've spoken about the brand's relationship, you know, and being legitimate and truthful, and you know not BS. I I'm assuming it's the same with Post Malone. What is exactly, I mean, what does that mean to the message to the fellow marketers who are, you know, considering celebrity endorsements? Like, is this, I mean, how are you pushing this initiative back? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I think celebrity endorsement too is, is a, a real hot button issue. You tie your brand to a celebrity and you, you sort of got you to be pretty careful, I think. Um, so with Post Blown, that was, it was a global campaign called Save the Night. So thanks for bringing that up. That was very important to Jägermeister. In, in the U.S. alone, we donated a million dollars to the Neva Foundation, which is the National Independent Venue Association. And the reason we donated a million dollars, and it wasn't just a million, by the way, it was a million dollars, a million and fifty-six dollars because of the fifty-six herbs, roots, fruits, and spices in Jägermeister. So we did that. We do, we donated that to Neva to say, hey, all you independent venues that are were the first to close and will be the last to open, this is a tiny little bit uh, just to help if we can. So, and that's because Jägermeister has just this rich history in music, not just in the U.S., but globally. So that was, a, you know, uh, that was the U.S. version of a, of a global campaign uh, called Save the Night. And then, uh, you know, having Post Malone recently sign on as a sort of spokesperson for that, there aren't many uh, celebrities, really, that are just super authentic. And I, right. I, I have not met the chat myself. We have team members here that went out and, and chatted with him. And he had to be comfortable working with us, obviously, just like you did when you signed on. But... You know, from what I've heard, everyone that's been in the room with him is a lovely, lovely guy. He likes, he loves Jägermeister, loves live music, loved what we did to try to support it. So that was a very natural, um, you know, a very natural deal to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the the initiative Save the Night. I mean, because obviously being in the industry, you know, the the bar industry, since we have a tap room. And knowing how the others in the industry are feeling, I mean, think, I think anybody kind of getting behind, especially a brand like yours, in helping to try to push that initiative to get these guys back open to help save these bars that meant a lot to not only your spirit, but to every, you know, the people that venture to these places. I mean, it's, it's a huge deal. I mean, it's, and it's not often you really see bigger brands like that get behind the smaller guys. So I, I really applaud that and, I appreciate that. I mean, 
it, it, you know, just for everybody out there. So really, last question for you here. If, you know, any of our listeners that really want to have a true Jack Carson moment, <laughs> they need to sit back in their living room with a shot of Jägermeister craft beer. I would say, you know, one of our beers, you know. Would, and yeah. which album would they need to be listening to? Oh, gosh. Man, that's, that's <laughs> tough. You know, which album? Well, um, it's called This Is Spinal Tap. Oh. Okay. I, I think, honestly, to, to just bring it all together would have to be that one. Okay. And, yeah, only because any other real serious, naming any real serious rock band, I would feel bad. But Spinal Tap always puts a smile on my face. I did download it to my iPhone and forgot about it. Got in my truck the other day and Stonehenge played at 110 decibels. Well, maybe not that many, but it was very, very, very loud and neighbor-annoying volume. That is awesome. So everybody out there, make sure you have a good craft beer, your cold one-ounce shot shot of Jägermeister to sip with your beer and listen to Spinal Tap. But the other thing I I just want to throw out there real quick, and as I've learned being around you, you actually do, (laughs) and maybe give us an outro, is you do a wicked... Christopher Walken impression. <laughs> wow. I feel like maybe I was kind of put on the spot there, but I'll do my best. <laughs> You're listening to Jonathan Wakefield on the hour live. On the story. Oh, that is Enjoy. amazing. That is amazing, brother. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so and, much, uh, Jack. I really, yeah, Jonathan. Pleasure. We're going to be in New York for uh, Pastry Town. Yes, November uh, 10th. November 10th. So hopefully we'll be able to get to see you. I'd love to see you there. And then as soon as we can, uh, let's get on a jet plane and go to Wolfenbüttel, Germany and, and uh, have doesn't get any more drink local than that. Yes. Absolutely, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Cheers, guys. Thanks Cheers. so much. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, JC Hill and Jack Carson, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. And anytime on the SiriusXM app and now on Pandora Podcasts and soon to be Apple Podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.